and everybody else uh, will be in the book of 2 Corinthians today. So if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that's where we'll spend the next uh, 40 minutes or so together in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, there should be a, uh, a blue one, and you can turn in those Bibles to page 563, page 563. Uh, the last few Sunday mornings, we have been uh, seeking to drill down together to understand sort of across the landscape of the whole Bible, what are some of the important, significant things that the Scriptures teach us about managing the money and uh, resources that God has provided to us. So we'll be finishing that up this morning. Next week, um, incidentally, Lord willing, we'll be starting the book of Jonah. Hopefully when you came in, you got uh, a card that gives you the dates of that series. It'll be the month of February. And um, you may take the time this week to get together with another person or two and in one sitting, read through the whole book. It's only four chapters, it won't take you very long. You'll really capture the, the essence of the whole story if you do it that way. Hopefully that'll be an encouragement to you, and then you'll be ready for uh, next week, which, uh, by the way, we're going to be having a whale of a time, and it's going to make a real splash. Second Corinthians chapter 9. Now, before we read the text, um, I have a confession to make. Um, I have a habit that some of you are not going to like. What did that mean, Brittany? You're trying to choose which one? Uh, in fact, uh, this habit I'm about to disclose may um, offend some of your deepest sensibilities. Uh, this habit is that uh, one of my mentors years ago taught me that whenever you read a book, you ought to start at the end, read the conclusion, and then go back and read the whole book. So that's the habit I've picked up. Unless it's a novel, which that would just destroy it. I don't know why you'd spend the time reading it. I always crack open a book, go to the end, read the conclusion very carefully to understand where the author is trying to take me in the whole book, and then go back to the beginning and read through the whole thing. I have found that to be enormously helpful. Now today, I want to do that with you by picking up a long story that actually began way back in 1 Corinthians and read the conclusion to the story in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And the reason to do so is I hope it will make the whole story make sense by simply understanding the conclusion. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 Verse 6 says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. 
He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and the increase of the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible Now, as I mentioned, that's the conclusion to a rather long backstory. Unfortunately, this morning, we don't have the time to start in the book of 1 Corinthians and read all the way through. Even more so, we don't have the time to stretch across the other books of the Bible where this situation is addressed. But we can read the conclusion, and I can fill you in briefly on the backstory. The bottom line of what Paul is referencing here is that Paul had aimed to stir up the church in Corinth and many other largely Gentile churches around the Roman Empire to give an offering that would be taken back to Jerusalem to address the needs of largely Jewish Christians. Now, That story stretches across many, many chapters in the Bible. Paul actually gave a substantial amount of time to this fundraising effort. But that's, in essence, what the story is about. In the first century, many Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were facing abject poverty. And the reason for that poverty is twofold. First, these Jews who had become Christians were suddenly outsiders in their own communities. And a result of being outsiders was that they faced persecution. And that persecution had even financial hardships attendant to them. The other reason for their poverty was a significant famine was coming. And as the story unfolds, had indeed come. If you'd like to learn more about that specifically, you could look up the 15th chapter of the book of Romans, the 16th chapter of the book of 2 Corinthians, and the 8th and 9th chapter of 2 Corinthians. In those chapters, you'll see that all fleshed out. But broadly speaking, that's what happened. Now, the reason as I think about passages for us to consider in relationship to money and possessions, the reason this one stands out is perhaps more than any other text in the Bible. This one helps us understand how giving works. In a very short paragraph, we get to see the whole cycle of generosity, what its design is, what its end is, how it starts, what's in the middle, and how it ends. And so we'll just focus this morning together on the conclusion Now, there's an essential principle on display 
in the ninth chapter of Corinthians. And we could put it in a sentence. That sentence is that receivers of God's bountiful grace become cheerful givers of the same. Receivers of God's bountiful grace become cheerful givers of the same. What that means, brothers and sisters, is that if you have trusted Christ and He has saved you, then you have received the grace of God. And that saving grace is now in the process of transforming you, indeed transforming all of us, from selfish, childish, egotistical lovers of ourselves into people who love God supremely and therefore love people and therefore are becoming cheerful givers. You see, hardwired into the kingdom of God is what we might call a certain reciprocity. There's a way in which, like a boomerang, the grace of God extended to us will go back to God and then be extended to others. That's how the kingdom works. God gives grace to us, and then we give grace to others. That is the essential, basic assertion of these verses. There's a cycle, if you will, of biblical, cheerful generosity being explained. As I've thought this week about how to try to get this across, I have worked and worked and worked at it, and I can't figure out how to just do it with words. And so what I'd love to do this morning is have a little craft time. Oh, it's already there. Amazing. Good job. So what I'd love to do is do a little bit of drawing. Is that okay? You are free to do some drawing as well. And I hope by trying to describe this not only with words but with pictures that perhaps it would make a difference in our lives in a way that's lasting. So as I describe that repetitious cycle of giving that this passage describes, here's essentially what I mean. If we read the chapter closely, then we'll see ultimately that 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is not about us. It's about God. God is the focal point. He's the one upon whom there is emphasis. And giving starts with God because grace comes from God. And so the chapter tells us very clearly, God gives. And we'll try to capture that verb, gives, with the arrow, that God gives. And the result of God giving, especially God giving Jesus Christ, is that people like you and me are transformed into what we might call givers. Givers. We were people enslaved to sin, trapped in lives in which our ultimate desire was to live for ourselves. But now we've received a whole new identity. We have been transformed into having at the core, in essence, a nature in which we are givers. Now, certainly, that giverness has to be developed over time. But it is a status, a position that we're given in Christ. And then, as God gives and continues to give, then what do His givers do? Well, as we said earlier, we extend the grace that's been given to us. We give. 
So God gives, which makes us givers, which means we can give, which according to 2 Corinthians 9 means that there is a certain harvest that will come. Now, very likely, quite a few of us in the room have all kinds of questions developing as we hear that word harvest. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. But the cycle of giving doesn't stop there. The passage makes very, very clear that ultimately the harvest is about giving glory, honor, thanks, praise back to God. That the way giving works is it flows from God to us, to the harvest, which results in more praise and glory to God, which simply then repeats the same over and over and over and over and over. Pictorially, that is what 2 Corinthians 9 says. What I'd love to do in our remaining time together this morning is just try slowly to talk a little bit more deeply about each step of that process in such a way that hopefully this chapter will grasp us, make sense to us, and motivate us as followers of Jesus Christ. So we said that it begins with God, that God gives. Friend, any understanding of what we're to do with money or possessions or our bodies or our time, anything we've been entrusted with, any understanding of what we're to do with what we've been given that does not start with God is dead before it ever begins. Our orientation about the resources we have must not begin with us. It must begin with God. Because God is the giver. God gives. Friends, God gives. God gives air to breathe. He gave you your life. He sustains you. He's doing it right now. He's given people who have helped you become who you are. God gives food and laughter. And for those who care, He gives the Super Bowl next Sunday. He gives power to get up again and try even after we've failed. He gives personalities and skills and friends. He gives beautiful sunsets, good food. He gives a church family. Most importantly, though, God gives himself. God gives himself. As you look at your Bible, do you see that in verse 15? It says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The inexpressible gift being talked about is Jesus Christ. Now, as a quick aside, the word inexpressible in the original language of the New Testament did not exist until the moment that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote it. He literally invented a word. It does not exist in secular Greek literature. This is the only place it ever happens. As Paul thought so deeply about the gospel and what God had given him in Jesus, 
he literally exploded with new words. Brothers and sisters, God is a giver. And chief among all God's gifts is His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth. He became a man. He lived among us. He faced every kind of temptation and suffering and difficulty that we have, yet did so without sin. And because He did so without sin, then He could supremely give His life on the cross as a substitute for sinners. God gave. God gave Himself. If you flip back just one page in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, you'll see that very carefully explained. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, meaning He lived in heaven, yet for your sake he became poor, meaning he came to the earth and subjected himself to all kinds of poverty so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, maybe the most captivating thing about all of that is that we today, as brothers and sisters in Christ, not only know about this gospel, We not only trust in ideas. No, it's far more personal and important than that. We trust and enjoy the giver himself. You see, as Jesus was resurrected and later ascended in order that the Spirit would come, then the Spirit doesn't simply talk to you from the outside, but comes to dwell and live within So that literally from the core of your being, there is a life-giving source of grace gift. A grace gift that's always there. The Spirit continually pouring into us the love and joy and peace and assurance and comfort and conviction of God as we enjoy Jesus in a warm personal relationship. Friend, I wonder if you look back over the last year or two or three of your own personal Christian walk, would you describe it like that? A a not simply reading words on a page, but an interaction with the living God. I hope so, because that's what you have. But of course, there are times that we go through experiences where it doesn't feel like it. I hope if you look back on recent years and you have not been experiencing the warmth of that kind of life-giving relationship with God, that you would trust another brother or sister in Christ enough to tell them that. It is a common experience to go through dry spells, Invite them in. Allow them to pray for you, to walk with you, to get together and start talking about that, reading the Scriptures together, asking that times of refreshment would come because God gives. 
He gives. He doesn't stop. He gives, he gives, he gives, he gives, he gives. And according to these verses, God's gracious giving of himself results in the creation of something that didn't exist before. And that's people who are not principally embroiled in sin, enslaved to desires they can't control, but have been set free. A freedom that isn't the freedom just to do whatever we want, as the youth talked about in their retreat last week, but the freedom rather to obey God, to enjoy God, to experience God, to share God with others. If you look there at verse 7, you'll see that it uses the phrase, God loves a cheerful giver. So what's happening here is God gives to us, giving us a new status, a new place, a new identity in Him. And then we, in turn, become cheerful givers who give ourselves. God saves us by His grace in order that we would become people of grace who would then share that grace with others. This means, of course, that the the disposition, the heart, the attitude of the giving that givers do is of great importance to God. I think, unfortunately, that in many ways is misunderstood today. Friend, did you know that of every command given, let's just take the New Testament for simplicity's sake. Every single command given in the New Testament, nowhere does it say, just obey, stupid. It doesn't matter if you want to. It doesn't matter if you really mean it. Just obey. That is not God's attitude about what he instructs us to do. That is not representative of what God's after. You see, you can obey a command externally and still disobey that command if your heart's not in it. God ultimately is not about modifying your behavior, but about transforming your heart, about creating within us a love, a joy, a passion, a desire for Him. A satisfaction that means we not only obey in behavior, but we enjoy and submit to Him in heart. Beloved, God wants your love, your joy, not your begrudging obedience. God intends to transform each one of us at the heart level. We who know Jesus Christ are givers. And because we know Jesus Christ and are in a status of being givers, then we are people who give. We give. Now, what do we give? Well, we give love. We give forgiveness. We give each other the benefit of the doubt. We give hospitality. Right now, 
Next door, some people are holding little babies who are not theirs so that parents can sit here. And because you keep making so many of them, that's going to keep happening. <laughs> we, we serve one another in the most practical ways when we're ill. Like going to the store and picking up groceries and carrying them to somebody's house who is too sick to do it. We give by listening to each other's doubts without harshness, without judgment. We give by taking each other to and from the airport, by sharing holidays together, by helping each other raise each other's kids. And boy, do we have some crazy aunts and uncles in this church. We give by opening our homes, by opening our hearts. And of course, that kind of giving includes giving money and possessions too. Now, as we think about that in particular, the giving of resources, remember, friend, that any amount you put in the offering or use to serve another brother or sister in Christ is ultimately a gift of grace. It's able to be given here because it was given here. We don't give anything that we somehow drum up in and of ourselves. We only give what's already been given to us. And friend, in that way, we see that giving is ultimately about worship. Because giving points to the one who's given to us. Giving, therefore, is about God. It glorifies God and confirms His gospel. That's what it's for. Now, as you think about that, then that, of course, raises a whole host of questions, many of which we simply cannot get to in this kind of setting because they involve so many personal questions and experiences and life situations. That's why it's so important to be in relationships outside of this room. But one of those questions that is on many of our minds is, if I'm aiming to be a giver, giving financially, then how much am I supposed to give? I think that's an important, understandable question. And this passage tells you. It actually gives you a very specific answer. Look with me, if you would, again at verse 6. says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I didn't say you'd like the answer, but that's the answer. What I mean is, Friend, the amount of your giving is a matter of conscience between you and God. The amount of your giving is a matter of conscience between you and God. Some of us grew up being taught something called a tithe, which typically 
is thought of as giving 10%. Now, that's a great thing to do, but that isn't what the Bible says. Nowhere in the Bible are we taught that the extent of giving ought to be a tithe, a 10%. If you add up all the giving the Old Testament Israelites were commanded to do, and all the feasts and festivals, you compile it all up, it amounts to 23 and a third percent of their income. If you get to the New Testament, the only time the word tithe is ever used, it's used negatively in reference to how people thought about and treated their Old Testament. The command of God in relationship to our giving is not scrape 10% off the top and set it aside. That's way too easy. God's not after a percentage. He wants the whole thing because he's after your heart. Now, sometimes giving 2% is going to be a tremendous sacrifice that requires deep, deep trust. Other times, it's going to be well beyond that. You're never going to get an email from your church telling you how much you should give based on your salary. Did you know that there are entire groups that do that? There is no formula. Being a church member doesn't mean you commit to some particular financial or material commitment. No, you have a relationship with God, the giver. And that giver has given you a certain set of circumstances and a certain amount of resources. And he wants you to talk regularly with him about that. And that becomes a means of spiritual growth as you seek the Lord and what he would have you to do. God wants you to decide, beloved, in your own heart to give cheerfully and generously. And whatever that is, that is completely fine and wonderful. Now, this raises another question, of course, and that is, well, if God commands giving, but God cares about the heart of giving, He wants it to be cheerful, then if I'm not giving anything, and I don't want to give anything, and I don't have any joy about the idea of giving anything, then how do you go from the, the command to happiness in obeying the command. The issue makes sense? How does the heart get transformed? How does one who has trusted Christ and loves him and sees, I am a giver, but good golly, I don't want to give up some of what I have earned. How does that happen in a way that you become cheerful? Friend, it's not by trying harder. It's not by gritting your teeth and saying, well, this year, by golly, I'm going to do that. It's not even by adding accountability for people to ask you. Now, not that that's bad, but that's not how this actually works. Because you see, if we think about the cycle here, God gives. He makes us givers. And then we give because we are givers. And yet, if we're struggling with this part, then we must go back and look at this part. To say that a different way, 
the way to begin to experience joy in giving is to meditate on what you've been given. The way to find joy and cheer and delight and satisfaction in not hoarding for yourself but in giving away is not simply to self-determine or to set in your account an automatic withdrawal. Friend, it's to meditate on, to pray about, to thank and praise God for what He has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. God gave. And friend, if you think long enough about who you were and who you now are because of what God did for you, then that will, even if it's small, sprout a little seed of gratitude which will come out as a grace gift. That's how this works. One author I read this week said something I just love. He said, Christian generosity is a visible sign of an invisible grace. Isn't that good? Christian generosity is a visible sign of an invisible grace. If that's not clear, here's what he means. He means that that this part of our drawing is invisible. You see, none of us can look at another person and simply without hearing them speak, just looking at their appearance, say, well, that's a Christian, and that's not a Christian, and that's not a Christian, and that's a Christian. That's impossible. Because Christianity is an inward act of God transforming the heart. It has nothing to do this side of heaven with your physical appearance. It's an invisible work of God's grace. You with me? You can't see that. But you can see this. In fact, it's rather easy to see that. You can see, does someone have a disposition to give? Do they love to share? Do they find satisfaction and delight in giving? That you can see. And so his argument is, this that you can see becomes the proof of what you can't see. Christian generosity gives evidence and is even an apologetic of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, if we deeply recognize the miracle of God's grace in our own lives, then the experience of that grace motivates us to our own grace giving. Now, hopefully so far so good in terms of your comfort level, but now it's going to get a little awkward. God gives, and He makes us givers, and we give, And then chapter 9 says that there becomes a growing harvest. A harvest. The analogy in verse 6 makes this abundantly clear. It says that if you give with right motive, God will produce a harvest... And the harvest 
is more than the seed. And the harvest is given in order that there would be more giving. That's what the passage says. Now, I've got to be honest with you, that makes me squirm a little bit on the inside because it sounds a lot like things I don't believe. It's even clearer in verse 8. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The point seems to be, church, as we regularly give in the offering, as we go beyond that and help each other personally with needs, and as we support special initiatives for gospel advancement around the world, God will make all grace abound to us. Meaning, you will have always all that you need to give all God would want you to give. God will never ask you to give something you don't have. And if you give, ordinarily, your capacity for giving will grow, which means you will give more. Now, if you look at verse 10, it references two things. It says there's a multiplication of seed and an increase in harvest. Multiplication of seed and an increase of harvest. I want to say here very plainly, clearly, and directly, this is not the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a heresy that unfortunately has ravaged much of the world that teaches if you give financially, that will guarantee that God will make you healthy and wealthy. Friend, that is a lie. That is not true. That is not what God promises. But in our eagerness to guard the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must not neuter this passage. Because it seems abundantly clear that God teaches through these verses that as this cycle of giving increases and repeats itself, then the harvest will grow. God will give more seed in order that God will bring about more harvest. Now, you can think about that in an immaterial sense. If you get used to sharing a little bit of what you have, then you'll become more accustomed to being, having an enlarged capacity to give more. If you get used to having one person over for dinner, then you'll get more used to having two, right? And the same thing is being taught here in relationship to resources. Ordinarily speaking, if we are faithful with a little and we do so with right motive, God will enlarge our capacity to give more. Now, why? Verse 11 tells us, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Now that, of course, is where culturally we run into a huge problem. Because if you make, let's say, the average 
person just for argument's sake makes $30,000 this year. The average person makes $30,000 this year. How much are they going to spend? They're going to spend about $35,000. Okay? We, we live in a society where consumer debt is incredibly easy to get. And we are assaulted constantly with the message that we need more. And that message doesn't create the problem. It simply exposes the problem that's already in us. Right? Now, here's the weird thing. $30,000, you, 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 you spend thirty-five. Guess what if you make two hundred? Guess how much you're going to spend if you make two hundred? Probably more like two fifty, two sixty, two seventy. Now, obviously, the math doesn't... I had tutors. I still got Ds. But that doesn't add up. You see, what happens is what people call lifestyle inflation, meaning if at one point in your life you could live on 30, then when you make 50, 70, 90, 100, what are you doing each step of the way? You're, you're increasing the standard of living. Now, is some of that appropriate? Of course. For example, if you're a poor college student, you have no job, and you graduate by God's grace, and you get a job by God's grace, and that job is 15 miles from where you live, what are you going to need to do? Buy a car. If you have scooter and you get car, that's an increase in your standard of living. Is that wrong? No. But friend, that car is to be used as a grace gift that you're extending to other people. So you pick people up. You bring them to church. You run errands for the little old lady who can't get out and get her groceries. Your, your capacity for giving increases as your resources increase. That's simply what's being taught here. You are enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So if we make that practical, a raise at work or an unexpected inheritance or a bonus you don't normally get or a scholarship that somehow you squeak through and because of that scholarship, you don't have to use what you had saved for college or an unexpected great deal in an apartment or... And those of you who are givers, are living out your identity as givers, will have experienced this. Somehow, the dollar seems to stretch further than it should as you're practicing a generous lifestyle. All of those things are the increase of the harvest. They're increasing your righteousness, meaning that you're growing as a Christian. They're increasing your opportunity to be generous. And ordinarily, they're increasing what you have. Do you hear the difference between give with the motive of God being forced into a corner to make you healthy and wealthy and give as a graced gift 
trusting that God will give you all that you need to continue to be generous. They're totally different. Now, as we wrap this up, what does the passage emphasize? What emphasizes God? And you see, the point here ultimately is that the increase in harvest results in more glory and praise and thanksgiving to God. And so how this works is that God gives and He keeps giving and sinners become givers and givers learn how to give and as they give out of the grace that's been given to them, then there's a harvest. That harvest is more people getting saved, more Christians growing up in Christ, more needs being met, more gospel advancement, more churches planted more spiritual maturity in our own lives. And as all of that happens, then it rounds up into praise and honor and glory to God. And God, therefore, as a result, pours out even more grace gifts. And the thing just repeats itself over and over and over and over and over. Do you see why giving is about worship? It's not simply about keeping the lights on or getting rent paid. It's about the character and glory and reputation of God. Friend, when you give as a Christian, and you give generously out of a joyful heart, you tell the truth about God. But when you hoard, when you anxiously stew over every dollar, when you refuse to live out the generous lifestyle, then you lie about God. This matters so much because the glory and honor and recognition of God is ultimately what's at stake. If you go back and read this text later today, you'll notice how many times it talks about God. Over and over, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, Verse 14, verse 15, all emphasize God. Why? Because he is the bountiful and unceasing giver. And when his people give, they tell the truth about him, which invites more people to trust him. Specifically in the first century, here's how that happened, and I'll close with this. In the first century... Where did Jesus die, get resurrected, and later ascend? Those of you who know your Bibles, where was that? It was in the city of Jerusalem, same city that you can go to today. And as he left, he commissioned his followers to share this message as they were filled with the Spirit. Where was the first church planted? The city of Jerusalem. Now, it wasn't the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. That's not true. But it was the first church. And as that church grew, it was largely made up of Jewish Christians. And eventually, persecution came that scattered them all over the Roman Empire. And as they were scattered, they were like seed. That spread for a harvest. That harvest was churches all across the ancient Roman world mainly filled with Gentile believers. They're the harvest. 
Now, eventually, that persecution in Jerusalem got so severe that many of the Christians were on the verge of starvation. How did God meet that need? He met that need as the harvest came back to God, came as a grace gift. The people who heard the gospel from the Jews sent resources back to the Jews as a grace gift demonstrating the gospel's true. God is the giver. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Father, would you use this passage and our experience in it today to grow our heart and capacity for giving? Would you be true to your word? Would you transform our hearts? Would you help us to trust you? 